Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Um, our text for this morning is um, John chapter 9. Um, John chapter 9. Um, but for the sake of context, we've got a lot of reading to do. So we'll read from John chapter 8, verse 59, and John all the way through to John chapter 10, verse 13. Hopefully it'll, it'll become clear later while we're reading so much text. But John eight fifty nine, all the way through to John 10, 13. This is the word of the Lord. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You were his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. 
The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand. And cares nothing for the sheep. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Before we turn to the Lord in the text, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. We pray that you would feed us with it this morning. That we would be nourished as with fat and rich food upon this wonderful text that shows us the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is to say, shows us your wonderful grace, the grace of our Father. So bless us this morning. Make us more humble and holy and happy in you. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the important things to remember um, when reading the Bible is that the chapter breaks are not original. They're not original. They're not inspired. Um, John didn't write chapter 1, dot, 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 chapter 2, dot, 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 chapter 3, dot, dot, dot. He didn't do that. Someone added those chapter breaks later. Now, that someone is not in this room, so I don't feel scared saying this, but they did a really, really bad job with chapter 9. I mean, a terrible job with chapter 9. They did a pretty good job elsewhere, but with John 9, they botched it completely botched it. Firstly, where they started chapter 9, right? 
imagine that the chapter division at the start of chapter 9 isn't there. So just take out that big 9 in your Bible. The end of chapter 8 flows really well into chapter 9. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, end of chapter 8. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, start of chapter 9. It flows perfectly. Now we'll talk more about that later, but secondly, look at where they ended the chapter. So take out the big 10 in your Bibles. It not only flows perfectly in terms of form, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Not only flows perfectly in terms of form, it flows perfectly in terms of substance as well. And this is the tragedy with the chapter break. In chapter 10, and this is why we read so much text this morning, in chapter 10, where Jesus talks about himself as the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name, who knows his sheep and who cares for his sheep and who lays down his life for his sheep. And when he talks about the sheep who know him and who know his voice and who believe in him and who follow him, and when he talks about the thieves and the robbers and the hirelings and the strangers who steal and kill and destroy and don't care for the sheep, who flee when the wolf comes, he's talking about all of that with reference to chapter 9. That's what he's referring to. In a sense, you could even say it this way, chapter 10 is Jesus' commentary on chapter 9. Jesus shows himself in chapter 9 to be the good shepherd he speaks of in chapter 10. This blind man shows himself in chapter 9 to be the sheep that Jesus speaks of in chapter 10. And these Pharisees show themselves in chapter 9 to be the thieves and the robbers and the hirelings and the strangers that Jesus speaks of in chapter 10. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning. So beginning in verse 59 of chapter 8. So they picked up stones, again, uh, stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You know, we tend when reading the Bible to not pause and think about what's being said. So pause and think here. What is John describing for us? The answer is John is describing for us a brutally violent moment in verse 59 of chapter 8. Jesus has just claimed equality with God. Before Abraham was, I am. That has angered the religious leaders. And their response is, as I say, one of brutal violence. Verse 59. They pick up stones to throw at him. Just think about that, right? A group of men. It's not clear how many of them there are. They certainly outnumber the Lord. But all of them reach down to pick up stones that are light enough to throw, but heavy enough to kill. And each one of them says with that act, just think about that act, reaching down, picking up a stone, light enough to throw, heavy enough to kill. Each one of them with that act says what? You're going to get it now. We are going to kill you. Right now, we are going to kill you. They are this close to, to committing 
a brutally violent murder and the only thing that stops them, I mean the only thing that stops them is that Jesus hides himself and leaves. He flees for his life, literally flees for his life. But then this is wonderful. If you were fleeing for your life, where would your mind be? It would be on you, wouldn't it, right? If you were running for your life, you would have no other thought, but I have to get to safety. I have to save my own skin. That would be where your mind would be at, right? If you're running for your life. Look at where Jesus' mind is. Verse 1 of chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Even when his life is in danger, Jesus is still thinking about others. Now, it is possible that verse 1 happened later. It's not necessarily the, cl- the case that it happened as Jesus was fleeing for his life. I think you can make a good case that it was. But when you think about it, this kind of thinking of others ahead of oneself is actually one of the marks of the good shepherd, one of the key marks of the good shepherd. Remember John 10 and the hireling, which means the religious leaders who don't care about the sheep. Remember what happens with the hireling. The hireling sees the wolf coming. So he sees that his life is in danger. And the hireling says, it's me or the sheep. And because the hireling doesn't care for the sheep, he says, well, I'd rather it be the sheep. And so he flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The good shepherd doesn't do that. The good shepherd sees the wolf coming. He sees his life is in danger. He says, it's me or the sheep. And because he cares for the sheep, he says, well, if it's me or the sheep, I'd rather it be me. And so he lays down his life. And possibly something similar is going on here. But continuing on in verse 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born It really is a tragic question, this one. It really is a tragic question. Firstly, their heads are in the wrong place. They assume there's one of two reasons for this man's blindness. Either his parents sinned before he was born and his blindness was their punishment, or he sinned before he was born. Believe it or not, some people taught that you could sin in the womb. He sinned before he was born and his blindness is his punishment. So the disciples just assume it's one of those two. It's either of those. And Jesus says, it's neither of those. So their heads are in completely the wrong place. And I I do just want to say this. So often when it comes to suffering, our heads are in the wrong place. We we just, our, our thinking is so off on the issue of suffering. And you actually see an example of how wrong our heads are when it comes to dealing with a text like this. Most people, or at least a lot of people, when it comes to dealing with a text like this, will, will say, well, okay, the disciples were wrong. You cannot tie specific suffering to specific sin. But, this is what a lot of Christians will say, you can tie suffering to Adam's sin. All suffering is because of his sin. You can do that. Now that's true. 
And it's important to realize that that's true. But it's equally important to realize that Jesus doesn't say that either. He could have. I mean, he could easily have said here, it's not this man's sin, it's not his parents' sin, it's Adam's sin. He could have said that. Wouldn't have taken any effort at all, or much effort at all. But he didn't say that. And so I say that to say, be very, very careful when it comes to thinking and talking about suffering. Christians do untold damage because like the disciples, they talk about suffering, but their heads are in completely the wrong place. Secondly though, it's not only that the disciples' heads are completely in the wrong place, their hearts are in the wrong place too. You know, it seems like the disciples have every intention of discussing the man and no intention of helping him. Every intention of talking about him and no intention of talking to him. And it's tragic because his is a, ca- a tragic case. He's blind, so he can't see anything. He's poor. He has to sit and beg. And he doesn't have family, obviously, who can support him. And speaking of his family, his parents come off pretty badly in this encounter, to be honest. He has parents who, if they're not cowardly, at least don't show the courage he shows, or for that matter, the care that Jesus shows him either. And so we see that here in verses 3 to 7. Look with me at verses 3 to 7. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. So he went and washed and came back. You know, people wonder here, what's with the mud? I mean, this is very unique in the Gospels, this type of feeling. What's with the mud? Why did Jesus heal this man in this way? Some people refer it back to creation. God made man from the dust in the beginning. Jesus is remaking this man's eyes from the dust here. And we could go on with other theories that people have put forward, but I feel like the answer is probably simpler than that. Just think about the context. Firstly, remember chapter 8. Jesus has just fled for his life. Jesus is right now in hiding. Now, if you want to publicly heal someone while you're in hiding, in other words, if you want to heal someone in a way that other people will see, but you're in hiding, how are you going to do it? This is a really good way of doing it, isn't it? It's the only way to do it, to publicly heal someone while you're in hiding, to, to, to heal someone in, 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 in a way that they're forced to go into public and then be healed miraculously in front of others. Secondly, though, in terms of what's with the mud, remember chapter 10. Jesus uses this wonderful language. He says, my sheep know my voice. That was literally true of this man. That was literally true of this man. Think of the way that Jesus healed him. Just think of the dynamic at play. Normally when Jesus heals someone, 
he's right there in front of them. He's, it's, it's, it's in his presence, right? So if Jesus heals a blind man, normally what happens? Normally his face would be the first face that they see. If Jesus gives a deaf person hearing, what would normally happen? Normally his voice would be the first voice that they would hear. That wasn't true here. When this blind man received his sight, Jesus was nowhere to be seen. He was nowhere to be seen. And so when Jesus, just think about the dynamic. When Jesus comes back later and speaks to him later, the blind man can't recognize him by what he sees because he's never seen him before. His face, Jesus' face, was completely unfamiliar. But what wasn't unfamiliar? This is so beautiful. What wasn't unfamiliar? His voice. His voice wasn't unfamiliar. He'd heard it before, telling him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. In other words, what? Really simply, he knew his voice. He knew his voice. And thus what? He showed himself to be one of Jesus' sheep. So what have we seen so far in chapter 9 at least? Well, we've seen the good shepherd from John 10 at work. We've seen a sheep of his recognizing his voice. That's also in John 10. But at least in chapter 9, what we haven't seen are the thieves and robbers and the hired hands from chapter 10. And so we come to them now. The man returns home. His neighbors and those who had seen him begin are shocked. But then they do something really strange. They take him to the Pharisees. We're not told why, but that's what they do. And so we come to the thieves and robbers. Picking it up in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. I want you to think for a moment about this language of thieves and robbers. What comes into your mind when you think about thieves? What comes into your mind when you think about robbers? Given the news recently, you probably think of the smash and grab robberies that have been happening recently. So you might think of the footage that you catch on the news of hoodie-wearing youths that are just completely out of control in a, in a jewelry sh store, bent on taking and destroying, engaging in this sort of desperate, wanton destruction. It's horrible footage to watch. And that's fine to think of those sort of robberies when you think of thieves and robbers, but when Jesus was thinking of thieves and robbers in John 10, he wasn't thinking of a young man in a hoodie. He was thinking of an older man in a robe. He was thinking of a respected member of the religious elite. He was thinking, to use a modern term, of a group of pastors. That's what he was thinking of when he thought of thieves and robbers. But you know what's interesting is that both type, types of thieves, the, the, the hoodlums in the jewelry store with the hoodies, the pastors in the church with the robes, both type of thieves have something in common. 
If you've seen the footage that I mentioned before of the smash and grab robberies, you'll know there's a sense of just, this is out of control. This is just out of control, desperately out of control. They're just bent on taking and destroying and smashing and stealing, and there's no stopping them. This scene in John 9, with these thieves and robbers, breathes exactly that same spirit. They're desperately out of control, just bent on destroying. Any way they can. Firstly, in terms of things just being wildly out of control, they begin by dividing. I mean, this is a really bad start, isn't it? It just, just shows how completely out of control they are. They begin by dividing. Right, this is like the opening whistle of a rugby game blowing and you start by tackling one of your own guys. Right, That's a bad start. That's how this begins. One group says, yes, it's a miracle, but it's the wrong day. He can't come from God. The other group says, wait a second. Are you insane? How can a sinner do such signs? So they just divide straight away, right out of the gate. Secondly, having divided, they turn to the blind man to see if he has any, any ideas. I mean, this is just out of control. Look at verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. This is pathetic, right? Here they are, the religious elite. They can't agree among themselves. And they're at such a loss, they just turn to the, the blind man and say, you, do you have any ideas? Can you give us a hand here? And he gives it. He doesn't get it completely right. He will at the end of the chapter. But he says simply and bravely, he's a prophet. But they're not happy with that answer, so they take another route. They affirmed the miracle to begin with. They didn't like where that led, so they try to deny the miracle. Maybe he wasn't actually born blind. Maybe there's some sort of trickery going on, some smoke and mirrors, so they bring in his parents. Verse 19, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And this doesn't work either. Because they respond, yes, it is. But we don't know how he sees. Ask him, he will speak for himself. So they try again. Verse 24, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. What do they mean, give glory to God here? It's possible they mean own up and tell the truth, but it's more likely that they're actually acknowledging that he was born blind. Acknowledging he was miraculously healed. Acknowledging that Jesus was involved in that healing in other words, acknowledging that every route that they've tried has failed, but that still it was God who healed him, and Jesus is just a sinner. And his response is so wonderful. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Verse 26, they keep trying. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I mean, they're desperate at this point, aren't they? Just so desperate pathetically desperate, wildly out of control, bent on destroying this miracle. And you get the sense that the blind man feels their desperation and just how pathetic they look, right? He answers them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? But it's here where things turn. Having tried everything they could do, to deny the miracle, they turn to reviling him. 
But even here, they can't help but acknowledge the miracle. They accuse him of being Jesus' disciple. But then they give him, when you think about what they're saying, the lowest blow that, that you can imagine. This is as low and as heartless and as cruel as you can get. Look at verse 34. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him in. You know what they're referring to in verse 34? They're referring to the fact that he was born blind. That's what they're talking about. They're referring, in other words, to the disciples' question in the beginning. In their minds, the fact that this man was born blind means he was born in utter sin. I mean, this is just cold, heartless, cruel, wanton destruction. They can't destroy the miracle, so they just try to destroy him. And they cast him out. So they are the thieves and robbers of John 10, aren't they? Clear as day. Bent on destroying this miracle. Because they're bent on destroying Jesus. And if they can't destroy the miracle, they'll destroy the man instead. And so they cast him out. But at this point, that something wonderful happens. Jesus, the good shepherd, seeks out his sheep. Look with me at verse 35. We'll close by looking at these verses. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Now, Lord willing, we're going to pick up here next week. But for now, this is such a contrast, isn't it? Here they were, thieves and robbers, going out of their way to destroy the miracle, to destroy Jesus, and unable to do either, they settle for destroying the man. Contrast that with the Lord. Here's Jesus doing what? Going out of his way to find that very same man and to save him. But you know what I wonder here? I wonder about verse 35. What I wonder is this. I wonder, how did Jesus find him? How did Jesus find him? Just think about the words of verse 36, uh, th verse 35. Think about the picture being painted here. Jesus hears that they cast this man out of the synagogue. So maybe one of his disciples comes to him and says, hey, you know the, the blind man that, that you healed earlier? The religious leaders have cast him out of the synagogue. And hearing that, he stops what he's doing and he goes looking for him. But how did he look for him? Did Jesus go around saying, hey, have you seen the man who was born blind and who used to beg here? Or did he do this? Wonder of wonders. Did he use his first name? Did he ask around, not, have you seen the blind man? Have you seen the man who used to sit here and beg? But have you seen so-and-so? Have you seen him? Did he call him by his first name as he searched for him? That's the thing I wonder. 
And the reason I wonder that is because Jesus says in the next chapter, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Now, whether he did that or not to this man, what is true is that he does that for each one who believes. He calls them by their names. He says, so-and-so, come to me. Come to me. Have you responded to his call as he calls you by name? Have you come to him? Come to him now. The one like the thieves and robbers doesn't come to steal and kill and destroy, but comes instead to lay his life down for the sheep, that they might have abundant life, indeed, eternal life. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his wonderful, gentle grace and all of his seeking of sinners. We pray that as your people who have been sought by the Lord, that we would never, ever become overly familiar with that wonderful gospel, but that instead we would be awed by it every day. The idea that you, the maker of heaven and earth, would call us by our names and would lead us out to green pastures and still waters through your son, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for the sheep. Thank you for that wonderful gospel. May we find comfort in it every day. In Jesus' name. Amen.